Our scripture reading for the sermon this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 6 through 16 as we continue our study of this letter of the Apostle Paul. So we read now 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 6 through 16, the Holy Word of God as it was inspired by the Holy Spirit given to the Apostle Paul. And so we know we are reading the very Word of God, not only infallibly inspired, but infallibly recorded. And so there is no error in the letter as it was given to Paul. So we read here again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known... They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading, its exposition, and its hearing. Paul has been telling his readers of 1 Corinthians that one reason God chose to do things the way he has done them is to expose, as we saw before, the folly of human so-called wisdom. To show that human wisdom, limited and corrupted by our sinfulness as it is, to show that that human wisdom is inadequate to lead to salvation, to any kind of reconciliation with God, or anything like a right covenant relationship with our Creator. To expose that, God chose to use something offensive to human judgment, foolish in human thinking, to save a people for himself, namely the crucifixion of his beloved son. Furthermore, he chose as his people many whom the world would consider foolish, weak, and despicable. He chose not many who were wise in the world's judgments or powerful or noble. 
He did things this way purposefully, Paul said, to show the inadequacy of many of the things that fallen mankind values. And so especially when Paul was in Corinth, where the wisdom of human philosophy was so prized, he made it a point not to engage in eloquent oratory, which was so valued in that community, or grand rhetoric, philosophical debate, to communicate the gospel. Verse 5, he says here, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is what we saw last week. But lest we think that Paul has no room for wisdom in his preaching or teaching, lest we conclude that Christians have to be, as we're often accused, anti-intellectual. Paul now writes about the wisdom of God. It's a wisdom Christians can and do possess and grow in. To teach about this wisdom, Paul juxtaposes it, you'll notice in this passage, against the wisdom of mankind. So in this passage, he bounces back and forth between statements about God's wisdom versus human wisdom, spiritual versus natural. As we pull what he says about God's wisdom versus human wisdom apart, we learn several things about the wisdom of God. Number one, it cannot be attained by human wisdom or effort on its own. That's not to say that God doesn't use wise human beings as his servants. People that would be counted wise as the world counts such things, except that they've become Christians, which is foolish in the world's eyes. But people who we would consider to be intelligent, smart, of course he does. But salvation, the wisdom of God, cannot be attained by human wisdom or effort on its own. Number two, we learn it it is given to those whom God has chosen. Number three, we'll learn it is given by the Holy Spirit. Fourth, it is spiritually discerned. And fifth, it gives knowledge of Christ. After saying that he preached Christ and him crucified so that Christians' faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, Paul writes here in verse 6, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Now, the word order in the Greek actually is really important here. And it's not the word order that we find uh, here in our translation. Paul literally says this, Wisdom, however, we speak and so on. Ordinarily, if we're familiar with Greek grammar, we would expect the verb, we speak, to come first. We speak, however, wisdom. That's how you would ordinarily expect this. So by putting wisdom first, the direct object of of the verb there, first, Paul is actually emphasizing it, that he's talking about wisdom here. He's emphasizing wisdom. And by doing that, he's making sure the reader knows that his challenge to human wisdom does not come from some disdain for wisdom altogether. So he's not, as so many accused Christians of being, and as some Christians I think think they should be, he's not an anti-intellectual here. 
Christians are not to be anti-intellectual or to avoid using logic and reason. But as we see in this passage, we need to recognize the limitations of human reason. Logic can only operate in a universe created by a logical God. That's something that we should recognize. And sadly, many of the so-called wisest people in the world who understand the principles of logic fail to recognize that truth. The only reason those principles of logic work is because the creator of the universe is logical. And so we employ logic and reason to understand the world around us from the simplest thing to the more complex. Uh, Whether you've taken a course in logic or not, you use it every day. And many people uh, fail to understand the intricacies of logic and and so fall for illogical arguments in their lives. But we use logic every day. One of the simplest principles of logic is the the principle of non-contradiction, which uh, the postmodern philosophers go out of their way to try to refute, and yet they have to use it to try to refute it. The, logic, the, the principle of non-contradiction, the law of non-contradiction, just says that, that something cannot be true and not true in the sa- at the same time and in the same sense. And so the simple ways that you use it uh, would be things like, you know, you look both ways when you cross the street, right? Because you understand that it's either you or that truck that's coming down the, the road. It can't be both and or you're in, in a lot of trouble, right? You know uh, that it cannot both be true that you would be safe and hit by a truck at the same time. Scripture is revealed in such a way as to require that we use reason to make sense of it. Wisdom, scriptural wisdom, is the logical application of the things that we learn from Scripture, the learning of which requires that we use reason. And so wisdom is something to be desired by God's people, both the simplest sense, using logic and reason to understand the word, and then applying the word well. That's the biblical definition of wisdom. So wisdom is something to be desired by God's people. But we must be aware that the things which we can understand as God's people are not going to be arrived at by human reason alone. So yes, we use that reason, but it takes something more Do you ever wonder why you can look at a beautiful sunset or uh, be in the mountains and look at the majesty of the mountains and the beauty of the forests or see the intricacies of a spider's web or the design of an atom or of a giraffe's circulatory system? And you clearly discern from that that there is a creator who designed this stuff And he must be glorious and wise to have done this. But then someone else can look at all of those same things and see nothing of God whatsoever, or at least apparently see nothing of God whatsoever. In fact, God tells us that they can see it, and they are without excuse, Paul says in Romans 1. They just refuse to acknowledge it. The reason I threw giraffe circulatory system there in that list was because there was a time I saw a clip from a a portion of a documentary, and these people were actually dissecting a giraffe and looking at how its circulatory system works so well. You know, if if a giraffe's circulatory system didn't work perfectly when it's 
head was raised up while it's eating leaves from a high tree, it wouldn't, its heart would not be able to get blood to its brain and it would pass out. But its heart being that strong, if it put its head down then, its brain would explode. Right? So its circulatory system has this whole uh, series of valves and things that regulate that pressure constantly so that the giraffe can stick his head down and, t- and a second later his head's up and he doesn't pass out, he doesn't die, nothing happens uh, adverse to the giraffe. And these people were, were dissecting this and studying this circulatory system and they couldn't help but say things like, look at how this was designed and then they would catch themselves and say, I mean, how it evolved. <clears throat> so they're self-blinded, self-deluded. This is what Paul says in Romans 1, verses 20 and 21. He says, for since the creation of the world, his, it's God's, invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So you can look at creation and you can see something of God's invisible attributes, particularly, as Paul says here, even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Human reason left unaided because we are fallen and sinful, uncorrected by God, left uncorrected by God, human reason leads nowhere but to damnation ultimately. We will use the capacity to reason that God has given us to make up excuses as to why we won't worship God for who he really is. Our foolish hearts are darkened. So the darkness of our hearts corrupts our thinking. Paul goes on in Romans 1, professing to be wise, they became fools. So think about that. Those who proclaim themselves to be wise in this age, that's the last people you should be listening to. Proclaiming to be wise, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Idolatry. Therefore, Paul says, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So Paul tells us there that because of the darkness of our hearts, we will corrupt even the what we would consider the highest and noblest thoughts and turn them to be used against the worship of God for who he really is and worship all kinds of things which are ridiculous. This is, of course, why the prophets in various places in the Old Testament make fun of people for cutting down a tree, for example, and you use part of it to bake your bread and another part of it to worship, turn it into an idol to worship. Idols that have eyes that see, their eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. That's why we so desperately need the Lord's perfect wisdom. Which brings us to the first thing that this passage tells us about the wisdom of God. Number one, the wisdom of God cannot be attained by human wisdom or efforts on its own. Verse 6, however, we speak wisdom, or wisdom, however, we speak among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Oh, what a relief that is, by the way. Paul just says it as an aside. 
If you are, particularly if you are living in a, a nation or in a culture where you are persecuted for being a Christian, heavily persecuted, you, you can know, you know, the rulers of this age are coming to nothing. They're throwing a tantrum while they're preparing to be destroyed. The wisdom God imparts, the wisdom Christ's apostles preached, is not the wisdom of this age. It's not the wisdom of the great and powerful. That expression, rulers of this age, can refer either to human authorities, like I just referred to, or to spiritual forces of darkness. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul calls Satan the god of this age. Because so much of this world is under his influence. And in Ephesians 6.12, he writes of principalities, powers, and rulers of the darkness of this age. All terms for spiritual beings, for fallen angels, who have a great deal of influence in this world. So both human rulers and evil spirits could be implicated in the crucifixion of Jesus. As we know, according to Luke 22.3, Satan himself actually entered into Judas Iscariot, apparently to make sure that he would go through with the betrayal that he had intended. Of course, in terms of human authorities, we see, as we read of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, we see the, the high priest, the temple administration, the Sanhedrin, the council of elders in Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, all had a role in putting Jesus to death. Paul thus speaks in verse 7 and 8 of the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Well, by the way, that's an expression when he calls Jesus the Lord of glory. That's an expression that he gets from places like Psalm 24 that we sang earlier, who is this Lord of glory, the Lord of hosts. So we also see here that he's saying this is, Jesus is one and the same as Yahweh, the Lord God. And if people had known what his crucifixion would accomplish, if Satan had realized what was going to happen, he wouldn't have done it. How foolish. If Satan and his minions had understood what the crucifixion of Christ would actually accomplish for Christ's people, the salvation of his elect and the glory of God, they would not have instigated it. Satan wouldn't have entered into Judas Iscariot and convinced him not to betray Jesus. If the high priest of the Jewish elders had realized that they were putting their Messiah to death or that his sacrifice would put an end to the religious system they were actually trying to protect, they would have turned back from their course. If Pilate had realized, everything we know, about, by the way, about Pontius Pilate tells us from inside and outside the Bible that he was considered by his contemporaries to be a superstitious man if he had realized he was crucifying God in the flesh or even a God with a small g, no way would he have done it. He would have been terrified. But human wisdom, and even the wisdom of a being like Satan who has been around since the beginning of creation, I guarantee he knows more than you and I do. And he can think more clearly than we can think, probably. But even that was not enough to make them realize what they were doing. 
Paul paraphrases Isaiah 64.4, which we read earlier, to make his point that what God reveals to his people cannot be arrived at by unaided human study or contemplation. Verse 9, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. God prepares things like salvation for those who love him. And they can't be arrived at by what we see or what we hear or what we contemplate in our heart. And so the apostle and other Christian missionaries, teachers in the early church, did not proclaim the wisdom of man. Rather, verse 13, these things we speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That's because the natural man, as Paul calls the one who's not redeemed, the one who's not born again, that natural man can never truly understand these things. Verse 14, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You know, to know something spiritual, you have to have a living spirit. You have to be alive spiritually. You know, for me to accomplish something physical, my body needs to be alive. If my body is dead, I can't accomplish anything physical. Same thing is true spiritually. As an aside, it's helpful to note that the word for natural there is psuchikos. In the Greek, it's related to uh, the word for soul. So we can say soulish or soulful. And that's juxtaposed to the thing, against the things here which are pneumatikos, the spiritual things pertaining to the spirit. That's not to say that soul and spirit uh, are two distinct things. Uh, the terms are used interchangeably in other places in scripture. But just to note that only those born of the spirit, only those indwelt by the Holy Spirit, can truly be spiritual. You know, when a New Ager or a Hindu or an adherent to some other false religion says that he or she is spiritual, well, that person is just mistaken. They can't be. Their so-called spiritual experiences are really what Paul here would call psuchikos, soulful, natural. They're psychological experiences. That's actually the, the source of our word, psychology. The word psuche which they mistake. So they have these psychological experiences which they mistake for spiritual experiences because they don't know the difference. They're spiritually dead and cannot know the difference. But Paul's point here is the inability of human brain power or education level or contemplation to understand the things of God. And so, in verse 16, he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 13, to make his point, Who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? We cannot know the mind of God unless he tells us what his mind is. Without God's help, we can't arrive at any knowledge of the mind of God. The wisdom of God cannot be attained by human wisdom or effort. But then secondly, we see the wisdom of God is given to those whom God has chosen. So we can't attain it by our own effort, but God does dispense it 
to the people he has chosen. In verse 6, Paul says, We speak wisdom among those who are mature. Now, interestingly there, uh, this might mislead us some, uh, because he's not just talking about people who've been Christians for a long time here. The word mature there is actually uh, teleois. It, it literally means perfect ones or complete ones. Paul's not speaking only here of older Christians or people who've been Christians for a longer time or, or have spent more time in the Word of God. Uh, certainly not those who are morally perfect, is he talking about. That's uh, That full maturity like that uh, would be reflecting the, the perfect uh, reflecting perfectly the image of Christ, that only comes in the world to come. That only comes after this life. But rather here he's speaking of the spiritual reality of the sanctification of God's elect people. As he writes in Romans 8.30, Whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now to be glorified, notice he says that it's in the past tense. He's, also, he's already done it to... To be glorified is to be made perfect. And Paul speaks of that already as a present reality, even though we're not experiencing it, even though we have yet to see it completely fulfilled. Since God has eternally decreed it, it is as good as done. And then also, we are identified already with Christ in his perfection. You know, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Those who were, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, spiritually dead like the rest of mankind are now alive in Christ, as he says then in Ephesians 2.4 and 5. The wisdom of God is given to those whom Christ has chosen. The third thing we see in this passage is the wisdom of God is given by the Holy Spirit. So we know it's given. How does God give it? Well, through the Holy Spirit. Verses 10 through 12. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? So who knows what's in you except your own spirit, right? Uh, Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. The Spirit here, when he talks about the Spirit of a man, he seems to be using it, in the more generic sense, just talking about immaterial aspects of your being. So just as your thoughts, for example, are part of the immaterial aspect of your being, uh, your thoughts aren't material. By the way, this is why even many unbelieving philosophers have recognized that there's, uh, there must be something beyond the material universe. Why? Because we can think about it. And you can't put your thought in a Petri dish. You can't put your thoughts in a test tube and test them. Sure, maybe there are some chemical reactions going on and there's, there's electricity coursing through your brain, but your thoughts themselves are immaterial. And even unbelievers have trouble denying that. Well, just as your thoughts are part of your immaterial being and are only known by you, because you have such an immaterial part of your being, so to know the thoughts of God 
or rightly to understand them as he communicates them in Scripture, you have to have the Holy Spirit who knows the mind of God. Particularly, the Spirit has revealed things to the apostles. So Paul says in verse 13, these things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So Peter says pretty much the same thing, right? Second Peter 1, verse 21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You know, the Bible was not written, as many would like to think, by men who had some nice insights into who God might be or what God is like. It was written by men who were told by the Holy Spirit what to write. Not in uh, most cases, not in formal dictation, though there are parts of Scripture where God just literally speaks to somebody and says, write this down. But as the Holy Spirit superintends their writing, using their own vocabularies and experiences, but writing down every word on that page, what God wanted to be written. That Scripture from the Holy Spirit must be illumined by the Holy Spirit in order for the reader to understand it fully and to believe it and apply it properly. Verse 14, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. There's your answer. Why is it that somebody can look at the thing, the beauties of Scripture, just as they can't, they look at the beauties of nature and they don't see the glory of the Creator. They can look at the truth of Scripture and not see that God has spoken this because these things are spiritually discerned. You have to have a living spirit. You have to be informed by the Holy Spirit or you cannot discern these things. So that brings us to our next point. The wisdom of God is given by the Holy Spirit and, number four, the wisdom of God is spiritually discerned. Look at verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. We need to stop there and note that a mystery in the New Testament is not something totally unknown. uh, Kim and I um, like to watch a variety of different kinds of uh, television programs or movies or things in our free time. Uh, But one place where our tastes overlap, something that we will do together often is we'll watch a mystery program. And we particularly, we have subscriptions to a couple of different uh, British television uh, streaming services because we find British mysteries to be particularly good uh, and entertaining. And, of course, part of the entertainment is trying to figure out the mystery, right? There is something that is unknown. Some crime has been committed, somebody's been killed, uh, and you're trying to figure out who did it, right? That's the mystery. Well, and often people use mystery as... as uh, a term for something that's unknowable, or at least from the perspective of the person who says something's a mystery. So, why husbands do your wives do certain things in your life, and you say, well, it's a mystery. Women, they just can't understand women. Right? Well, that's not how mystery is used in the New Testament, particularly. It's not for something unknown or unknowable, but rather something which God kept obscure in the past, but has made clear or is making clear now in Christ since he has come. Ephesians 3, verses 4 and 5, Paul speaks of the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, 
as it has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So he's saying it wasn't known before, so that's what makes it the mystery, but now it is known. So Paul speaks of this mystery here in verse 7, which God ordained for the glory of his people. In verse 10, he says, God has now revealed these things through his Spirit. So it was a mystery, and it is to those who are not born of the Spirit, but those who have the Spirit, they know these things, or they can know them. So the wisdom of God is that which delves deeply into what God has revealed and makes sense of it, the deep things of God, as Paul calls them. All good and sound theology is a deep study of what God has said in Scripture. We cannot separate our theology from God's revealed word, or we're just engaging in mindless speculation, or aimless speculation anyway. Such a study of God's word makes use of human intellect, though human intellect wasn't enough by itself, it does make use of human intellect, but it has to be illumined by the Holy Spirit. As we saw in verse 13, these things are spiritually discerned. Not only can the believer make sense of and believe the things that are taught in Scripture, which are spiritually discerned, but he or she will see the wisdom of what seems so foolish to the rest of mankind. So in verse 14, as we saw before, what is foolish to the natural man and cannot be known by him, is discerned by the one who is of the Spirit. Verse 15, But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Now Paul isn't speaking here of matters of church discipline. We can't show up when our brethren say, here's a sin I see in your life, and say, you can't judge me. I'm to be judged by no one. So that's not... Paul's not talking here about that kind of thing, about us helping each other grow in righteousness, but of the fact that the natural person has no ability to judge spiritual things. And so when somebody thinks you're an absolute idiot for believing the gospel, well, what do you care? They don't have any ability to judge you in those things. If they think you're foolish or wrong to believe the word of God, they're actually the foolish ones. They have no right to judge you on those things. The wisdom of God is spiritually discerned. And finally, number five, the wisdom of God gives knowledge of Christ. Verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So naturally man doesn't know anything of the mind of the Lord unless God reveals it to us, but those in Christ have the mind of Christ. So we wouldn't dare to try to instruct God because we know better. But certainly we do have something of the mind of God. It's not to say that we possess his perfect understanding, but that we have the ability to know him by the Holy Spirit. Now this is, I'll just go off on a brief tangent here. This is a reason why we reject what is known as neo-orthodoxy. There is a, a, a doctrine not, that's not... Old Orthodoxy, it's called Neo-Orthodoxy, and part of one of the doctrines of that school of thought is that God can't actually be known. He is wholly other. But we understand that God can be known, not perfectly by us because we don't have infinite minds, but 
God is perfectly capable of communicating who he is to us in a way that we can understand and it would be accurate. So we can know God. The wisdom of God is not something which can be attained by human wisdom, reason, or intellect. You will never argue someone into being a Christian. It will take the Holy Spirit's work. Now, your use of apologetics, we're told by uh, Peter that we're to be prepared to give an answer when called to account for the hope that we have. But, so, so God will use that to bring his elect to faith, but you're never going to actually argue someone into being a Christian, however well-reasoned your arguments are. But if you are in Christ, you possess wisdom the world cannot see. And you can grow in that wisdom. For it's given by the Holy Spirit. You, therefore, if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, can delve deeply into the Word of God and make sense of it. Don't squander your gifts in that respect. Use them. And make use of the many gifted teachers that God has given the church over the last 2,000 years. Most of all, you have fellowship with Christ by the Holy Spirit. You can know Him. You can know the mind of God and you can know Him ever more deeply. Rejoice in that and serve Him accordingly. Well, let's pray. Lord our God, we do praise You for Your wisdom. And we ask that you would grant that we might grow in godly wisdom imparted by your spirit to the fullness of the fellowship we can have with Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.